You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Close encounters of the first kind. Sighting of an unidentified flying object. Close encounters of the second kind. Physical evidence of a UFO. Close encounters of the third kind. Actual contact. Columbia Pictures, in association with EMI, presents Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The director is Steven Spielberg, whose most recent motion picture, Jaws, is already a legend. The producers are Julia Phillips and Michael Phillips of The Sting and Taxi Driver. Creating special effects is Douglas Trumbull, who in this film goes far beyond his achievements in 2001 A Space Odyssey. For the music, there was only one choice. 11-time Academy Award nominee John Williams, composer of the scores for Jaws and Star Wars. The technical advisor is the world's foremost authority on unidentified flying objects, Dr. J. Allen Hynek of Northwestern University. Heading the cast is Richard Dreyfus, who has shown his rare talent in such diverse films as American Graffiti, The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz, and Jaws. And making his American debut as an actor is the great French director Francois Truffaut, winner of the 1974 Academy Award. A close encounter could happen to anyone. It could happen to you. It does happen to Roy Neary. An average working man, Neary finds his life, his very world, changed. Who are you people? We have very little time, Mr. Neary. We need answers from you. They're honest, direct, and to the point. Who are you, people? Have you recently had a close encounter? I want to speak to someone in charge. Une rencontre plutôt inhabituelle. I want to lodge a complaint. A close encounter with something very unusual. What the hell is going on around here? Who the hell are you, people? Close encounters of the third kind. The experience of an ordinary man shared by people from all over the world irresistibly drawn by a compulsion they don't understand to witness the most dramatic event in the history of the human race. And what you will see has never been seen before. in an Indiana town and leads to one inescapable conclusion. 
everybody, and welcome once again to GeekFest France. My name is Carlos Perone, and today we are going to be geeking out over Close Encounters of the Third Kind. This is a movie that we really haven't focused too much in the past, but is a movie that nonetheless, anytime you watch it, you have to appreciate what an amazing job that was done on this film. Obviously, because of the timing, and this is something that happened when the film was released, it had lived under the shadow of Star Wars for quite a bit of time, because earlier that year, that summer, Star Wars had come out, and then around Christmas time is when most people got to see Close Encounters. The film has recently had its 40th anniversary. Hard to believe that it's been that long, and just like Star Wars, 40th anniversary too. And the way we're going to approach this film is through books. We're going to talk about a comic book adaptation of the story that Marvel put out a while back, and we're going to talk about a couple of books, old and new, about the making of this film. This is the type of film that, you know, from what I remember, uh, there wasn't really much of a sustained, marketable longevity to it, if you will. Because again, when you, when you compare something to Star Wars, or even Star Trek for that matter, there always seems to be something there for you to go to. But Close Encounters was made to be a standalone film. You know, it wasn't meant to be a franchise. So once you experienced it, most people moved on to the next thing until obviously they redid, you know, the, the re-releases and all that other stuff, the special editions. But luckily we have a couple of current books as well as an older book you know to give us a very in-depth look at the making of the film and we also have documentaries some of them are online on youtube right now that could uh, give you the background of how this film was put together and what a difficult monumental task it was so let's get started with close encounters of the third kind comic book movie adaptation I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. Worst crossover ever. Oh, by the hammer of Thor! Well, what brings you guys here? We're looking for a recommendation about comic books. Oh, well, I recommend you don't open a store and sell them. My spidey sense is tingling. Okay, for our comic book segment, we have a version of Clue of Encounters of the Third Kind done by Marvel. This is part of the Marvel Super Series line of special comic books. They're more like magazine-sized comic books. This is where I originally got my Empire Strikes Back comic book the first time and my Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I think I even got a, uh, a For Your Eyes Only version of that. These are different than regular comics because what they do is they kind of put together the entire movie, whatever movie they happen to be covering at the time. Now, not all of them were movies, these super special versions. The super special magazine-sized comics ran from 1977 to 1986. There were approximately 41 titles. And this was a period where they were hitting... You know, major motion pictures and some, you know, very successful ones and some not very successful ones. But it was just, you know, the deal that they had with these companies. They also had some sporadic other uh, non-film or television related things. Like uh, they had a couple of Kiss 
comics, which I'm not sure how that worked <laughs> in terms of what does that have to do with, you know, the general theme of it, but that's beside the point. The main thing is that Close Encounters was one of them. Now, some of the ones that you guys might be familiar with, or at least that we are going to hopefully in the future be covering, and we already covered some of them, Jaws 2, Battlestar Galactica, Meteor, that's the movie with Sean Connery, Star Trek The Motion Picture, The Empire Strikes Back, that's the one that we, you know, are very familiar with, Xanadu, you know, when you talk about... (laughs) Not very successful films. Raiders of the Lost Ark, For Your Eyes Only, Dragon Slayer. You know, this is like a who's who of the 80s, the late 70s, early 80s genre type of filmmaking in comic book form. Now, some of these you might have been able to buy in parts, especially The Empire Strikes Back. You know, I didn't own it in parts originally. I just bought the... Because I was never into comics, I never followed issue after issue after issue. And I remember with Empire, it was kind of weird how they kind of weaved them into the normal line, you know, of the run. But I only noticed it when I saw the actual super special version, which was all in one, you know, magazine, in one packet. I guess I didn't have the... The patience back then to be able to collect comic books, you know, a little bit at a time. But again, that was out of my radar. These I noticed right away and I gravitated to them, you know, instantly when they started showing up. But then I kind of fell out of them again. But I had never seen this Close Encounters of the Third Kind one. Obviously, it came out in 78, I imagine, which means it came out a year before even I got here. So that makes sense. Not until Empire, where, you know, all my Star Wars radar was all over the place, trying to find pieces of it anywhere that I could get. Well, this one, like I said, is part of this series. As far as I can tell, it was never released in parts, which is good, because this way you can get it all in one shot. I always prefer doing that. The version that I'm reading, this particular book was written by Archie Goodwin, who, again, is a very (laughs) familiar name when it comes to Star Wars comics. And there's an interesting article at the end of the uh, comic, which is kind of like the editorial they usually put at the end of some of these comics. You know, sometimes they just let people know what's going on in the business and blah, blah, blah. But sometimes they specifically talk about what you just read. So that's kind of neat, you know, when they give you a little background info. And here they talked about how, you know, similar issue with other movie franchises or or projects where you have little to no reference material. It is stated here that, yes, there were no photographic references. All they had was the shooting script and a promotional film, kind of like a what you would call, I guess, a sizzle reel these days, like an EPKE type of, you know, coming soon film that would show them at least what some things would look like, some sets, some props, some sequences would look like. So that's kind of good. But one thing that the reel didn't show, and they specifically didn't want the artists to really theorize too much on, is the look of the aliens. They didn't want anybody to know what these aliens were going to look like, because that's the, you know, highlight of the film. This was no big secret in terms of the film was shrouded in secrecy, the security was very high, and so they had to kind of keep that level of not revealing too much, you know, on this comic book. And just like in many other situations, they were not allowed to use the actresses' likenesses. Which, again, is something that hurts the book a little bit, I think. Now, from what I understand, after the artist and the writer got around to watching the film, 
they were able to go back in and make some corrections, but not too much. They still wanted to kind of keep it, you know, some mystery to certain elements of this uh, story because they wanted, obviously, people to go to the movie and um, watch it, you know, in person. One of the cool things about this comic is that, well, first of all, the cover of the comic is a picture I've never seen before. It is obviously made specially for Marvel. So it's their artists, you know, doing this particular rendition. What's somewhat ironic about the picture is that it depicts almost a dual drawing of the mothership. One of them being behind the mountain and one of them being in front of the mountain. The mothership is very interesting because it is one of these mysterious things that they try to keep quiet until the last minute. But for this comic book, they were actually allowed to show you something of it. The back of the actual cover, which would I guess would be page, I don't know if you would call it page zero or page one. It's the back of the physical cover. Gives you a, a list of the three different types of clothes encounters that you could have as written about by certain researchers. And since the movie is called Clothes Counts of the Third Kind, obviously the, the first question that would come to mind to people is, well, what's the first kind? What's the second kind? What's the, you know, what are these different kinds and how are they different? Well, they talk about Clothes Encounters of the First Kind, which is that's a sighting. Now, these definitions, I believe, or these titles were also part of a certain poster that they put out for the film. It might have been a teaser poster. I'm not entirely sure. But this isn't the first time, but it's nice to have it to go along because it's all, it's it's an actual cool little reminder of what you're talking about here, <laughs> especially when you give it a title that involves these different stages or these different phases of something. So a first kind, a closing out of the first kind is a visual sighting. So that would be somebody sees something in the distance, let's say, and they report it. You know, it's a first kind kind of um, encounter. Then you have close encounters of the second kind, and that is an encounter with physical evidence. So let's say, for example, you see something, and that something leaves something behind, whether it's a scorch mark on the ground, or something is displaced, or something is damaged, or you know something like that. Some physical remain, some physical result remains of that encounter. Then you have close encounters of the third kind, which is what this movie is about. And that involves making contact. And that is what this movie is about, is that contact is actually made at the end of this film, which is what you end up with. The illustrators for this comic are Walter Simonson and Klaus Jensen. The look of the comic is what I would consider to be traditional Marvel comic book. I've talked about this a couple of times in the past, in which how comic books these days look so much more realistic, to me at least, than they did in the past. This comic still has a little bit, it's almost like you can see the transition. Those late 70s, early 80s, you're transitioning from one style to another. It still has the colors, and it still has, you know, the backgrounds almost of traditional comic books, but they are starting to look a little more realistic. The faces are looking a little more realistic. Not necessarily actor realistic, but humanly more realistic, more or less. This is, like I said, this is a transitionary period, so you kind of get a little bit of both worlds. You have you have a, a leg in one world and a leg on the other world. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier... They knew from the start they were not going to be using the actresses' likenesses. Again, I have not gotten a straight answer yet. 
<laughs> have to continue looking at it as to why. And I'm sure it has to, it must have to do with rights. If you use people's faces, you might have to pay them extra. You might have to ask them permission. So as usual, the studio can own the character, but they cannot necessarily own the likeness of the actor's face. This is a, an ongoing debate that uh, is going to continue to be discussed and theorized and, you know, be brought up in court, I'm sure, at certain points of, you know, how much can they own of the character. Now, obviously, they can own the characters, and that is reflective in the comic. In the comic, you have characters that you see in the movie, except that they look different. They have similar lines. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of the lines are very much like what we're used to. But here, they look very, very different. From the start, plus, you can kind of tell, as I mentioned earlier, they had no reference. They had no photos. All they had was this promotional short film that gave them a couple of snippets of what certain scenes look like. So from the beginning, uh, when they're in the desert and they are uh, recovering those uh, fighter planes and they meet a Mexican old man, here... They have what appears to be an American Indian. I mean, to the headband and and robes and you know hair and it looks nothing. Not only does he look nothing like the guy portraying him, he's like a completely different ethnicity, completely <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so yeah, it's I guess if you go according to the script. You know, the script might have described them as an elderly tribe elder, let's say. <laughs> and that automatically might throw you in the, uh, in the Native American direction. Now, the next scene that, to me, also looks way different is the uh, air traffic controller scene. Now, this is a very interesting scene, and I'll talk about it when I mention the movie as to how, why it was shot and how it was shot and everything. But this was also a scene that I remember blatantly remember that the lead person the lead traffic controller was an african-american actor over here they don't have an african-american actor now i understand you don't put you know the likenesses you don't want to do that because you have that issue of likenesses and probably uh, legal payments and that sort of thing however i don't understand why wouldn't they just draw a different african-american actor <laughs> as the lead uh tra air traffic controller could it be made enough of an argument that, well, he kind of looks a little like the actor? I don't know because we can't see it. So they kind of went completely in the other direction. It's almost like they go out of their way to make those specific characters look way different <laughs> than originally intended or originally shot, at least. Well, there's a cute little shot here when Barry is first woken up in bed, the little kid, where all his toys are going crazy, that one of the toy robots that starts to work on its own, that starts to function and dance around or whatever, to me, the face looks exactly like Darth Vader. <laughs> and it's very unusual because you got to remember that the movie came out in November of 77, which is after Star Wars, obviously. Star Wars came out in May. So you figure by November, everybody has Star Wars in their mind. And these guys did come back to make some tweaks, the artists who drew this comic. Now, I'm pretty certain that there were no Star Wars toys featured in the movie. Now, we'll talk about the R2-D2 model on the mothership when we talk about the actual movie itself. But 
as far as the kitty toys, there is no way you would have had any toy resembling that for many, many reasons. One of them being that the movie was shot a year before Star Wars came out. The toys didn't come out almost a year after the movie came out. The logistics don't work. My guess is that when these guys were drawing this comic book or right after they saw the movie, when they came back and did some tweaks or even before, like I said, it could have been before because there's enough time there, you figure. They changed the look of that robot to make it a little bit more Darth Vader-y. That's just my guess. It's insignificant, but it's a cute little weird thing about the comic. One of the things that we have in the comic, because they went with the original script, is deleted scenes. And when we meet Roy's family and the initial interaction of, you know, the kids want to go to play mini golf and he wants to go see the movie. And right before the blackout occurs, that starts the ball rolling on the whole plot. There's a whole thing about one of his kids accuses another kid of stealing his luminous paints. I don't remember too much about that in the movie. And in here, it concludes with the blackout taking place, them losing power in the house. And all of a sudden, Roy kept saying that he didn't touch the kid's paints. This little river that he has, or a little lake that he has, made as part of his model train set, lights up. When the lights go up, in other words, when the lights go down, his little river starts to, to glow, basically letting you know that he did take the kid's paints, you know, to work on his model. It's a cute little end to the scene, but I don't really remember it being part of the movie. So again, it's, I think this is part of a deleted sequence or a deleted bit of the scene that includes that particular gag. Now, in the movie, we know that Roy goes to the office to figure out what's going on. They send him out in the truck, and he's out there running around. Well, while he's out there running around, he does, in the script, meet up with a couple of other technicians on the road. And they talk about how there seems to be a chunk of the power lines are missing. They're completely gone. They're, they're, they're not there. Like, somebody took them, which kind of, you're, you're, you know, okay, that's interesting. It's part of the whole mystery. But this is a scene, I think, that they completely removed from the film, but made its way to the comic. Again, based on the fact they're writing this comic based on the original script. They don't know exactly what's been deleted yet because they hadn't seen the movie. And I guess that after they saw the movie, it would have been way too much material to delete, you know, from the comic you know, you can make a little tweak here or there. You can change the picture or something, but that's an entire sequence. And that is a lot of real estate for them to have to completely remove, you know, when it's, when the book is getting ready to go to print. Another thing that I noticed that looks a little different, a lot different to me, is the character of Jillian. Again, you know, I understand they're not using the likenesses. I understand that. But what I'm finding here is that the character of Jillian, <laughs> it's... She's practically half naked through the whole movie. She's always wearing these super short shorts, which I'm trying to figure out, you know, yes, I do remember that she was somewhat scantily dressed at some point of the movie because she's like jumping out of bed or something. But the entire movie, she's not always wearing these super short shorts and, you know, you know, huge cleavage kind of popping out of her shirt. So I'm starting to think this is more of the comic book side of the 
you know, a little bit of TNA for comics. So in other words, a traditional, I mean, this, this could be another show altogether. The traditional male, female roles on comic books. The males are super buff, you know, uh, hulky kind of guys. And the girls are these model, you know, swimsuit model types uh, and always wearing scandalously clothes. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe they're making an effort to, you know, this is their practically only female character in this comic. So they have to project all the sexiness and uh, appeal for for your typical teenager (laughs) into that character. I don't know. Maybe. I just kept noticing. It's like, wait a minute. What's going on here? Every shot of her, it's like, it's really, uh, it's interesting. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Interesting. Now, the initial ships that we see during their first encounter, the small, I guess they're called the scout ships, in the comic, they're depicted as lights, just lights. You see a bright light coming at you and zipping by, but you don't actually see any structure to these smaller ships. On the movie, they do start out as just bright lights, but as they start zooming by, you got to start to see all these different structures, how these things have different actual, actual shapes to them. Here, they decided not to go in that direction. Part of it could be because of the mystery factor. Okay, I get that. And the other part of it could be because that's all special effects. And special effects are the last thing they do. So there's a good chance that that promotional film that they had was only acting and not actual effects. Because a lot of times, you know, they try to show something to to get people a little bit excited. Or whether it's an internal promotional film for advertisers or for merchandisers or for studio executives or for whatever. They're not ready to show them something big, so they give them a little little treat, you know, that sort of thing. The scene where the cop cars are chasing the ships, and the ships then just fly out into the, into the air, and one cop car goes over the cliff and kind of lands, crashes and lands. In the book, they make a point that this car crashes in a fiery explosion that tears the car to shreds. I don't think that's exactly how it happened in the movie. But they do make a point in the comic that's like, well, at least nobody got hurt. It's like, no, if a car, if somebody would have been in that car in the manner in which they are showing it to you, that person is completely toast. So I think they, they went a little bit over the top in the depiction of the crash police car. When this in- initial encounter is over with, they do reference the fact that Royce, half his face seems to have a, a sunburn. However, throughout this book... Now, I don't understand why, because it's a matter of coloring, and I don't know how it could be so weirdly missed, but they, I could not see practically any difference in, his, in the shading of his face left and right. In the movie, you do see it quite a bit, especially at first. But here, you know, he even references to it, and you're, I'm looking at him like, oh, I don't notice a difference. It's just like no difference. On the other hand, <laughs> when they go back at night to hopefully see that secondary appearance that never happens. Instead, it's the helicopters that come down. And Roy meets up with Jillian and Barry again. Jillian is showing him her sunburn because she apparently didn't get half her face. She got her whole face and part of the top of her chest. Again, they make a very, very blatant show of her suntan line, you know, across her chest. And it's like, 
okay, this reinforces my theory that this is just TNA. That's all that that is. It's the, they want to give you a little TNA with your sci-fi. You know, sci-fi with a side of TNA. <laughs> now, the actual abduction scene, it's pretty accurate the way that they portray it, except for Jillian's clothing as usual. But the thing that I noticed they completely skip is the final struggle between Jillian on one side of the doggy door pulling on Barry and the other side, which apparently is the aliens getting him in, they completely skip that altogether. The, the comic goes from there being a lot of noise and a lot of chaos to her getting up and noticing that Barry's not around, which is kind of weird how they completely skip that. Now, there's a scene of her sketching her, you know, after she's, after she's been searching for her kid and she can't find her kid and she's starting to have these psychological issues just like Roy is having his psychological issues they show her painting and painting and painting but we don't see what she's painting we don't actually see you know the image of what she's drawing now there was a scene in the comic where and I remember that while they're waiting for those eventually turn out to be helicopters come by Barry is building a little mountain out of dirt on the ground and then Roy comes in to kind of start helping him you know, add a little to it and this and that. And she kind of starts to add before everything starts happening. In this comic, during that scene, it's to me, it's implied that he kind of takes off a chunk or she takes off a chunk of that mountain to make it a little more squarish on the top. And that kind of triggers a little bell in their head. Go, oh, this looks interesting. You know, that's an, I don't remember that happening until way later in the movie when Roy is kind of losing his marbles and building all that crap in his house. And he then promises everybody, okay, I'm going to stop this. This is over. I'm going to put it away. So he's, I think he's there with one of his kids. And he's like, I'm going to take this model and throw it out or whatever. So he grabs it and he's trying to pry it off the table. And in the process of prying it off the table, he breaks the top of the mountain to reveal a flat top. And that is what kind of drives him back into the <laughs> into crazy town, you know, because all of a sudden the connection is even bigger now, visually, at least for him. The actual encounter at the end of the movie is, again, pretty accurate in terms of how things go. Once again, the smaller ships, you have no detail. But the mothership, they were able to do a two-page layout of at least what the top of it looks like. And that is something that is pretty, pretty good in terms of all the structures and all the pipes and all the, I guess, buildings, you know, on top of them. I was very surprised that that was not kept a mystery. They were able to show you what that looks like. You know, pretty accurately. One thing in the comic also that's different is that the entire prepping of the astronauts, if you want to call them, specifically Roy, you know, as in the movie, Roy joins the rest of them. They dress him in those red outfits and get him ready to go in. But in the comic, he doesn't even really bother to get mixed in with them at all as far as getting him prepped. He just walks in, and they, the, the little aliens grab him and bring him in right away. He's not part of that astronaut line, and he gets picked. You know, that sort of thing. As an astronaut, he's picked without having to change his clothes. Again, I guess that's a way of shortening the story for, you know, comic book purposes. They really go out of their way in the comic to not show at least the alien faces. You do see the kind of silhouettes of the bodies of the aliens, you know, that sort of thing. And... You really don't see too much detail on that secondary alien that smiles and waves and does this whole thing with with Truffaut at the end, the hand signals. 
they try not to give you too much of that. There's a little bit of it. But as promised in the beginning, as I said, they did go way out of their way not to show you because that was the mandate that they had from the studio. I think overall, this is a very good depiction of the movie, given its limitations. And it is a very good companion piece to have, because as I remember, once again, the merchandising wasn't that crazy for this film. There were a couple of items here, there. There's a box game. I talked about it before. Toys, I'm sure there was a lot of paper products, you know, that sort of thing, uh, books and folders and a magazine, a book in here or there. And we are going to, you know, talk about some of these books during this episode, but massive, massive merchandising, not a lot. I've seen like a bendy figure of the alien, which looks really kind of bad. <laughs> but, you know, this being the third in a line of pretty cool Marvel super special, you know, issues, this is a great entry. I think, and a great example of what a tie-in comic book, you know, to an actual movie should look like. The one I picked up was at eBay. Again, wasn't too expensive. Not a lot of people are interested in this. Maybe it costs four bucks. There's tons out there. You know, you can find them pretty easily. But as usual, it's really fun to pick out the differences between, uh, you know, the film and the comic book version. Matu, Mirada, <laughs> Must burn the books, Montag. The books have nothing to say. When I was your age, television was called books. You, Mr. Bemis, are a reader. A, a reader? A reader. A reader of books, magazines, periodicals, newspapers. All right, for today's book review, we are going to focus on a couple of similarly themed books about the making of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The first one is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Ultimate Visual History, written by Michael Clastorin. And the second book that not only did I read this book for additional information, but even the visual history book has a lot of this information also included. You know, some of these stories are based on that book too. The secondary book is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Diary. This one's written by Bob Balaban, who is also one of the actors in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He plays Lachlan. And we also have Close Encounters of the Third Kind production design scrapbook. This was put out by Joe Alves, who is the production designer of the film, and Dennis Prince. The first book, obviously, it's called An Ultimate Visual History, and it's good because it gives you an overall arching, you know, how the film was conceived, pre-production, production, post-production, production, and even afterwards, you know, the, what happened with the film after it was released. The Close Encounter Diaries was a very small paperback, originally priced for $1.95. I think I picked it up on eBay, maybe for three or four bucks. There's still many copies around. And like I said, this is in the form of a diary that the actor, Bob Balaban, kept while shooting the film. And then later, Turned it into a small, you know, paperback book, which is really cool. And Close Encounters of the Third Kind Production Design Scrapbook by Joe Alves and Dennis Prince. This is a book that might be a little hard to find. He, it was a 40th anniversary uh, publication. I believe it's like a self-publishing type of company that he used. So you're not going to see this at Amazon or at the stores. The only way you can probably get this is through his Facebook page that leads you to his personal page. And it is full, full, full 
of not only a lot of the stories that I read in the other books, but a lot of pictures that have, I've never seen before. A lot of them are probably his own personal photos of behind the scenes and the scouting of all these locations and a lot of the artwork, the conceptual art and the storyboards, which are fantastic. The guy they used was, was really, really good. Like I said, if you're interested, you got to go to his Facebook page. Now, when I bought this book, you know, it's a little pricey because it is a self-publisher, I believe, and it's a soft cover book. So when I bought it, According to what I was reading on the website, he only had a few left because they were running out of their stock. I don't know if they're going to reprint them. And when I actually clicked on it, it said one left. So it is conceivable <laughs> that I might have the last one. Who knows? Who cares? If you're into this, give it a try. What's cool about it is that not only do you get the book, but you also get a book plate with the autograph of Joe Alves and the writer of the book, Dennis Prince. So let's talk a little bit about Close Encounters in terms of how this film was made and, you know, all the different <laughs> things that led to it being filmed. We have to, first of all, keep in mind, this is obviously Steven Spielberg's probably second major film. His first studio film was Sugarland Express, which wasn't exactly a blockbuster, not until Jaws had come out that all of a sudden he became Mr. Blockbuster. This was the second film he was working on, and then followed, obviously, by Close Encounters of the Third Kind. At the time, you know, while he was working on the story itself, and he had already, you know, figured out a couple of producers who were going to help him try to pitch this movie, he had already had a pretty good reputation. However, you know, Jaws hadn't come out yet when he was fully ready to do this. He was still working on it. As a matter of fact, he began, like I guess, the research or the, the groundwork for this work even before Jaws. But during Jaws, apparently there was so much downtime because of all the problems they kept having, you know, with the shark breaking down that then during his downtime, work on other scripts. And this was one of them. And at the time, even Richard Dreyfus would kind of, you know, help him brainstorm some stuff and watch over his shoulder and help him out as much as possible with it. So he kind of already knew that this thing is something that he was working on. So... When he was kind of getting ready to start pitching it, one of the first studios they went to was Fox, 20th Century Fox, but Fox turned it down because they already had their own big sci-fi film in the works, obviously Star Wars. The film originally was called Watch the Skies, based on, if I remember right, some of the older 1950s you know, sci-fi movies about aliens, space aliens, that sort of thing. He got eventually a development deal, again, based on his reputation. And like I said before, Jaws had not come out yet. He was still in the process of putting it together, editing, all that sort of stuff. And he had an estimated $3 million budget that he was thinking of being able to work with. Columbia Pictures decided to give him this deal, this development deal. And you got to remember, when development deals doesn't mean you're necessarily going to make the film. With a development deal, you are given some money to at least start writing and developing a script, possibly different drafts, that sort of thing. And during this development process, the name changed from Watch the Skies to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The title itself came directly from a book by Alan Hynek, a UFO specialist, let's say, who wrote a book about all these different things having to do with UFOs that Spielberg was a big fan of. And 
as they were progressing with the film, uh, Heineck got wind that they were using his terminology for this film. So rather than to avoid, I guess, uh, any type of legal issues, copyright issues, they brought him on as a consultant to the film, thereby him giving, you know, the, the his blessing in being able to use that title. He even got a, a cameo in the film. He plays a role. In the original script, the lead was a UFO debunker, an Air Force officer who would go around debunking stories. And the story is about how he all of a sudden starts to believe the things that he's trying to debunk and that he is basically a pawn of the government and how he comes to realize that, you know, as he unveils all these different UFO related things that are taking place. So while he has a basic story, he does hire a writer to start kind of fleshing out the actual script uh, and, you know, to give it some life. And he gets to the point where, you know, he, he keeps changing everything that the writer is writing. So he kind of realizes he has to kind of take over the actual writing himself. He has to do it, even though it's something he doesn't like doing. He's not a big fan of writing scripts. He realizes that this is a story that is so personal to him that only he can write it the way he wants it written. So on the spring of 1975, while he is now editing Jaws, he begins to put together a script and the main character starts to switch from being a, a Navy officer, a government employee, to more of an everyday type of man, a more of a family situation, it cre- it create, which kind of reflects in, in the final uh, version of the film. It's more of the story of a family man and, you know, this adventure that he goes on. So while he's still waiting for this film to be greenlit, Universal offers him another film to direct. And he starts to kind of consider that because, you know, he kind of thought, well, maybe we're, I'm not fully ready for Closing Counters yet. Maybe I have to do something else first, I guess, to prove himself more, you know, to these studios. Uh, the film is called The Bingo Long Traveling All-Star and Motor Kings. It's a film about the Negro League uh, baseball players. And how they kind of rally together to form their own team. So it's a straight, uh, dramatic type of piece, uh, you know, totally different than, than, than what he's dealing with, not only with Jaws, but the potential of Close Encounters. So he considered that for a while, but then eventually ended up going back to the Close Encounters idea. Uh, so for a while, that the, you know, the movie almost didn't get made. So now Jaws comes out, and all of a sudden this movie starts to kind of explode in terms of how successful it is. So now that Jaws is becoming so big, you know, the development of Close Encounters starts to get to gather a little more traction. He's able to hire John Alves, who is a production designer, to start working on locations, trying to figure out where we can shoot this thing. And as Jaws becomes even more popular and starts to make even more money because they realize now that this is a, this movie is big. It's going to be making like serious bucks. They proceed to allow him to start hiring production people. Granted, they haven't completely green lit the film yet, but at least he's able to start hiring the different types of key personnel that he needs, you know, to start putting together this film and to get a better idea of how much this is going to cost. Knowing darn well that special effects are going to play a major part of this film, Spielberg approaches Douglas Trumbull, who is one of the ex-2001 special effects people. You know, a lot of them were British, but Trumbull was the one of the main ones that was at least, you know, working in California and Los Angeles. Even though he was doing some other kind of work, and he was under the contract under Paramount, 
he tried to approach him anyway. Now, very recently, Trumbull had turned down Lucas when he was looking for somebody to do Star Wars because of the same problem that, you know, he was on the contract with Paramount and they were developing some other projects, so he couldn't accept the job. But now, some of those jobs have started to kind of fall through. So Trumbull asked for permission to be able to kind of work on this project while the other stuff, you know, waiting for the other stuff to happen, and they let him do it. So all of a sudden now, he's got Trumbull. Like I said, Trumbull at the time had... 2001 under his belt, which was an amazing film in terms of what was not only the film itself, but what was done for the field of special effects, how much it had advanced, you know, during the production of that film. As they started to look for locations with John Alves, one of the early script ideas was to, instead of having the mothership at the end of the movie land at a military facility, it was going to land actually between two fast food places. I don't understand that. I don't know if it was supposed to be funny or what, but they quickly abandoned that idea. One place that was found was Devil's Tower, the iconic mountain area that is so <laughs> important to this film that has since become, you know, an attraction, you know, a movie attraction in terms of people go there because they know it from this movie. The other location they found uh, was in Mobile, Alabama to be able to create, you know, the entire landing facility, the scientific government camp you know, that's supposed to be in the back of the mountain. And, you know, some other locations that need to be shot, they would all be done in, in Alabama. What they found in Alabama was a um, a hangar, an actual Zeppelin hangar from World War II, because all the other locations, the hangars were not tall enough, they were not wide enough, and if they were of the perfect size, they all had columns supporting the roof. So in this particular case, they found something that did not have these columns, you know, obstructing the view. However, even with the size of this monstrosity size, you know, hangar, they needed something even longer. And what they ended up doing, John Alves, was opening the front doors and extending the, let's say, runway portion of the set. So it's kind of like the infinity part of the set, you know, out of the hangar into the open air by constructing a whole bunch of like scaffolding type of um, enclosure and covering it with like a black tarp on the inside, so it would always be night inside. So while they're still in pre-production, Spielberg continues to refine the script, you know, moving into a second draft and that sort of thing. Uh, some of the characters start to change a little more. Lancome, the head scientist now, is turned into a Frenchman because Spielberg felt that he wanted to give the entire film more of an international uh, flavor to it, not just being like an American adventure story, but more like a world, you know, uniting <laughs> to, you know, follow these discoveries. In this particular draft, the World War II planes are supposed to be found in Brazil, somewhere in the Amazon, you know, in this version of the script. The estimated shooting date now is set for May of 1976. Now, once again, they're not greenlit yet, but Columbia feels very strong about this project. They might not necessarily say it, but again, keep in mind, Jaws money is pouring in and in order to qualify for certain tax shelters and tax rebates by at least starting to shoot the film in 1975, they are able to begin a portion of the shooting script, even though we're working a very, you know, we're still dealing with a second draft here. Columbia authorizes them to start shooting the air traffic controller scene just to be able to qualify for this money for this uh, savings, uh, you know, from, from the tax incentives. So before the year is over, before 1975 is over, at the end of the year, they shoot that entire sequence. 
keep in mind, none of the main actors have been cast yet. That's why this sequence was perfect to be shot, because none of the main actors are in this sequence. By 1976, once the year rolls, and they're getting closer to actually beginning, possibly beginning a production, the estimated budget for the film is about $10 million. So, obviously, the film has grown in <laughs> money-wise. And by the time they greenlight the film, the budget jumps to $12 million. You got to remember, main reason for this, you know, the big jump in authorizing the money and the amount of money pouring into this film compared to other films that Columbia was doing is all about Jaws. Jaws is what really sells them on trusting this director. Plus, from what I understand, they really didn't have too many pictures ready to go on their schedule. The studio had exchanged hands a number of times, and every time they exchanged hands, you know, new people come on board, and they all want to do different things. So th this was a period where all of a sudden they didn't have that many things, you know, ready to go. So the casting process begins. Originally, for the role of Roy, Spielberg wanted Steve McQueen, and he actually got around interviewing Steve McQueen, you know, sent him a script, had a meeting with him, and didn't work out. He didn't want to do the film. You know, he liked it, but not his type of thing. So the typical, you know, who's who of Hollywood at that time of who's hot <laughs> were approached. Everybody from Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Jack Nicholson, Gene Hackman, every, you know, all those major players were all approached and most of them were, you know, turned down the film. Eventually, it came to Richard Dreyfuss because he knew him, he was familiar with him, and Richard Dreyfuss was really, really interested in, you know, performing <laughs> this role because he really uh, kind of fell in love with the script as it progressed and as he, you know, was, you know, sharing so much time with Spielberg and kind of getting to know the story. Spielberg's first choice for Lancome was Francois Truffaut, and apparently that's who they ended up getting right away. It was a shot in the dark. He never thought he would get him, but he did. The famous French director, who had also done some acting too, was interested in doing the film because, you know, he liked Spielberg's, you know, directing, I guess, from, from Jaws, I imagine, would, would probably be the best thing to remember. But it is mentioned in the books that he was looking to learn what it was like to be an actor for future works that he was going to be doing, whether it was behind the scenes type of stuff in terms of maybe shooting a film that has to do with that, or even writing books about acting, because he was also a pretty big writer. But the film was a combination of not just, a, you know, the money, he was actually researching, he was doing some research on actors, what it's like to be an actor. The role of Lachlan, which is the translator for Truffaut's character for Lancome, uh, went to Bob Balaban. Who I mentioned earlier is the other gentleman who wrote the secondary book that I mentioned. And one of the main qualifications for the actor was to be able to know French because he was playing the translator for Truffaut's character. And in some of the interviews I've seen, and even the books, it's mentioned that he only knew French from high school. And by the time that his, this film was putting put together, he had forgotten a lot of it, but he could kind of recite a few things in there. So he kind of wormed his way into the movie and not necessarily knew the language that well, but figured out, you know, what needed to be said when and all that stuff. So it kind of worked out for him. This diary that he put together, it is just so funny. And these stories are so typical of like a behind the scenes type of thing that I strongly recommend it for anybody who's into this, this kind of, not only the Close Encounters history, but just acting in general, the, the type of things that take place behind the scenes. It's just so funny. As they're going through all the production process, uh, you know, putting the film together, Spielberg, you know, admits so many times that he was just 
you know, starstruck, you know, with Truffaut being there. And it was intimidating at times because it's kind of like, you know, one of your idols is working for you as an actor. And he says that it, it was really good to have Bob Balabam there as his assistant, you know, as working with him, not only as the character does, but behind the scenes, they would just hang out, you know, hang around each other and kind of became pretty good friends. And Spielberg says that that's good because it kind of kept the pressure off his back and kind of entertained him while he was doing his work. And he wouldn't have to worry too much about, you know, how is Truffaut feeling? You know, how is he doing? Is he enjoying himself? You know, all that kind of stuff. With Bob Balabam, there was also an issue of, the, you know, that they, they told him that he needed to have that beard and wear the glasses. And the main reason is because people were starting to realize that Bob Balaban and Richard Dreyfuss kind of look alike a little bit. And if he removed his beard and removed his glasses, he would look exactly like the Richard Dreyfuss character, the way that they assembled him. Because obviously they didn't want to have Richard Dreyfuss once again wear a beard and have glasses like he did on his previous film with Spielberg. The problem that started happening later is that behind the scenes and even in the different towns they would go into, people would confuse Balaban for Dreyfus. And there are so many incidents that they mentioned here on the books that Balaban would get asked to sign autographs or people would ask him questions about Jaws thinking that he was <laughs> Richard Dreyfus. And he got so tired at times that he just started signing autographs as Richard Dreyfus and telling stories about Jaws and answering people's questions because he just was tired of just trying to correct everybody or, or, or make them believe that, no, I'm a different person. Dreyfus is doing something else. You know, he's, he's playing a different character, but they kind of look alike so much. That was happening. The character of Jillian, played by Melinda Dillon, uh, the mom, let's say, to the little boy, Barry, she was brought on at the last minute. They were running out of time, and at the last second, they suggested somebody that Spielberg liked. They brought her on, so she was kind of rushing into the whole thing. And right off the bat, she didn't want to tell anybody that she had a broken toe. So there were a lot of scenes where she's running that apparently she was in complete agony because uh, she didn't want to tell people that she had a broken toe because she was afraid she might lose the gig. And even during the shooting of the film, I think there was a scene where she jumps out of the helicopter and lands on the grass or whatever. She like pulled a muscle or something, which again, she didn't want to tell anybody because she was constantly afraid of losing the job because of her injuries. But it's, it's something uh, interesting to keep in mind when you watch her running around that this poor woman's in agony. The film also has Lance Harrington, which is one of our many favorite cult actors. He plays kind of like the driver, the government driver for Lancome and, and Lachlan. Now, going back to the special effects, one of the things that made this film innovative, let's say groundbreaking, is that they were using motion control cameras. Now, motion control at that time in history is something that also Star Wars was doing for the first time. The difference is that, and again, keep in mind that the, the, the theory behind motion control is being able to shoot a scene of some elements, let's say, while you're moving the camera, and then you shoot something else while you're moving the camera. With Star Wars, it was something that was able to, they were able to do, especially with special effects like spaceships or and backgrounds or planets and that sort of thing. Kind of like elements that are already manufactured, let's say. In this film, they were doing something similar, but they were adding a layer of live action into the motion control movements. So that is something, again, that was pretty innovative. And it was part of the uh, Trumbull because he had been doing a lot of work on um, theme park rides and all kinds of other, not just movie-related technology, filming technology and, you know, reality-looking type of stuff technology. And 
For Star Wars, Douglas Trumbull's father, Don, had also helped them put together their rig for their, you know, spaceship motion control equipment. So these guys were doing something slightly different, but it was kind of all in the same family of special effects. The famous five-note musical cue that they communicate with the aliens, that's something that John Williams, the composer of the score, uh, had to put together ahead of time. Uh, not only that, but also the the actual communication, the conversation that they have during the film between the the music, you know, with the with the synthesizers and the and the ships, that had to be worked out ahead of time because it is part of the story. So they needed to have it ready, you know, for when they started shooting all that later, you know, in the filming process. At one point before the actual beginning of production in '76, Spielberg kept tweaking the script and adding more scenes to it, and I, that is something that at one point Columbia got a little upset about, and they went into a meeting <laughs> about it, and it got to the point where the producer and Spielberg they were ready to quit the film if they did not allow him to add these scenes, and you know because normally that's the type of thing that they're not allowed to do, but you know again he had some pull, he had jaws behind them. So that allowed him to be able to do those sort of things. But at the same time, they made it very clear that for these type of things to happen, he was going to have to deliver, you know, Jaws type of, you know, blockbustery effect, you know, money wise, which is a lot of pressure to have on a director when they're told that this movie better be a phenomenal hit or else, you know, you're going to get it. <laughs> By May of 1976, principal photography begins for the film. And like I mentioned earlier, as soon as Melinda Dillon started working, she she hurt her other foot. She hurt herself right away. There were some um, deleted scenes, obviously, uh, throughout the film that were shot because of the you know the earlier drafts of the film and even the uh, the earlier edits of the film. There was an entire sequence taking place at a Holiday Inn with Lancome and uh, Lachlan. These are scenes where uh, Lachlan tells Lancome that the final destination for where the ship is going to arrive, you know, they have figured that out. In the sequence, Lachlan wakes up Lancome in a hotel room. And in the manner that he's woken up, you can tell that he fell asleep studying learned to speak English tapes, which uh, ironically, for those scenes, they use those tapes, the real tapes that Truffaut was using, they use them as part of that scene. In the sequence... Truffaut comes out of his hotel room and then, and like looks at the sky, you know, for the first time in the film. Again, this is a deleted scene, so it never got made it to the final thing, but this would have been the first time that you actually get to see somebody looking at the sky, which is kind of like the original title, Watch the Skies. There's a deleted scene of Roy after he's sent out, you know, to uh, figure out what's going on with the blackout, where he meets up with other technicians, you know, on the road and they explain to him that there's lines there's there's a couple of miles of of power lines that are completely missing and apparently yeah they're gone they're like it's like it's looked like they've been removed you know from the poles and that's something they you know again they they got rid of that little exchange early on in the editing process there's a scene where roy goes to the police station to file a report about what he saw and while there he kind of witnesses the other cops you know not filing any reports so he kind of leaves without filing a report he gets discouraged you know that he doesn't want to really tell his story there are scenes where he gets lost which you kind of seen a little bit of that during the film and he asks people for directions and people are asking him if they can turn the lights back on so it's kind of like a hectic kind of scene that gets removed too 
There's a scene of a of like a neighborhood party where Ronnie is kind of like keeping an eye on Roy. Ronnie is uh, his his uh, his wife, played by Terry Gar, and uh, she's kind of like making excuses for his weird behavior. And he has a similar moment during this backyard party, uh, similar to the to the mashed potato moment, uh, but instead it's with Jello. So I guess they probably removed it because it's kind of repetitive. It's the same type of thing where you he's seeing images in food. There's a scene where he is in the bathtub crying and his wife finds him there and he's completely, you know, broken down emotionally. And that is a scene that they removed from the first cut. But later on in other cuts of the film that I'll talk about later, it was re-added back into the film. It's a very emotionally strong scene. Originally, there was there were these scenes where Lancome and Lachlan uh, meet at an airport for the first time and... Lancome gives him a test of translating and he has him read this kind of slightly pornographic book description uh, and he has to kind of translate it for him. And the reason that they're at the airport is because they're going to interview a passenger plane or a commercial plane or something like that that had just seen a UFO. Uh, it's possible maybe it had to do with the beginning of the film, with, you know, with the with the air traffic controller scene. I don't know. But that entire sequence was completely removed at some point and they created a new opening scene for these two to meet. They had a, a lot of problems with Truffaut because of the language barrier and it got to the point sometimes where he would write cue cards everywhere. He would put them on the wall. He would put them even on other actresses' uh, chest. They would kind of like glue them onto the chest to kind of so he can read lines while staring at that actor. But yeah, they, it's all kinds of tricks to get him to uh, to be able to pronounce things right. There was a lot of that sort of thing. There was an incident uh, around the 4th of July where there were all kinds of celebrations because of the Independence Day, the centennial that was happening. And in Alabama, where they were shooting, there was the local KKK were marching and Dreyfus got very upset about it. And he went on air, you know, during an interview and expressed his disdain for them. And he started to get death threats. So at a certain point, uh, they had to hire bodyguards to keep Dreyfus protected, you know, protect them in case somebody tried to hurt him, you know, because... There were actual death threats against him. And at one point, we find out through these books that one of the bodyguards that he, that was hired uh, was actually a, you know, uh, Dreyfus asked him a question. And the guy was a KKK member himself. So they got to get, they had to get rid of him. Now, this might sound kind of funny, but it's like serious stuff. These guys are kind of out there. And Bob Balaban all of a sudden started to get worried because he was always confused for Richard Dreyfus. So he was afraid that, wait a minute, what if they think I'm Richard Dreyfus and what if they come after me instead? So he even asked uh, for a, a security and a bodyguard, but uh, luckily nothing happened. Some of the tricks that they used, especially Spielberg, when, with, when working with Barry. Now, Barry's the little kid. He was like three or four years old played by Carrie Gaffrey, in order to get certain reactions out of him. Um, there's a scene where he walks downstairs and he sees all that mess in the kitchen. A very reminiscent scene like uh, an E.T. where he sees all that mess that, that just happened there. And, and when you look at it, you see the kid reacting in different ways. And what Spielberg let everybody know is that what happened was they, they had one of the crew members dressed as a gorilla. And they had another crew member dressed as a clown, and they would kind of appear out of nowhere. And at first, 
you see him getting startled. And then when he kind of saw that he was starting to maybe get really frightened about the gorilla mask, let's say, Spielberg tells the crew member to take off his mask. So he takes off his mask and he sees that it's his friend, one of the crew members. So the kid starts to smile a little bit. And then he sees the other one there, which is the clown, I think, and they, he starts to smile some more. So it's all these little tricks that he did. He purposely tried to do everything in one take so he can get an an honest, you know, unscripted reaction out of the boy, which worked perfectly. The scene where he's being abducted and you see him go through the door and he's being pulled out of the other side, you figure this poor kid must be traumatic, you know, uh, such a, such a, such a scary scene. But what we learn is that on the other side of the door, you know, his TV mom is pulling him back in the house. His real mom was on the other side, uh, pulling him forward. So that kind of, explains why obviously this you know it wasn't as scary as it looks to us to us it looks completely frightening now a lot of the uh, rigging they had to do in the film in order to get the lighting right because remember no special effects are done yet but all these spaceships that they're going to be interacting with they provide light they shine light down on these actors so they had to create all types of uh, you know hanging rigs for lights that would move and produce shadows and lights color lights over the actors especially on the scene where he you know where they have that close encounter at the hill that curb road that was all done through rigs again nobody have seen any ufos in terms of they don't know what they're going to look like yet they're hoping to be able to match all this movement being done by lights later on with the actual special effects during the landing sequence at the end when they're playing the music with the keyboard to communicate the actor that they used was the actual person representing the company that they were using for the keyboard for the actual synthesizer he was a technician and he got friendly i guess with spielberg and spielberg say hey you want to be in the movie you can be the operator so he ended up staying way longer than expected his name was phil dodds and shot a lot of the film at the end, you know, of him reacting to what was happening and actually, you know, using the keyboard, playing it. Sometimes, you know, they were matching notes, but it's his fingers, it's his face, it's the real guy. The color designations for the, the, the billboard, the giant billboard that reacts to the, to, to, to the music that the lights change, that was designed by John Alves also, the production designer. There was a whole sequence during the landing part of the film that was designed originally obviously everything was designed uh, you know with concept drawings and that sort of thing but this particular uh, sequence is called the cuboids sequence and what it is is that not only are the ships you know dancing or doing whatever they're doing communicating with sounds at, at a certain point all these little cubes about i don't know i think they were saying they're like four or five inches square like a lot of them would come down from the ships and in order in, in a sequential order, we start traveling, you know, flying through the landing field and interacting with people. And they're very shiny and very geometrical and how they would be spaced out from each other. And at a certain point, they, like I said, they interact with people. They, they, they mention something about them uh, being able to sense when a camera was filming them. And then when the camera would run out of film, let's say they would move on to a different place so they can interact with somebody else or another piece of equipment. With some of the other actors, they're supposed to be able to maybe touch them and that sort of thing, you know, interact with them. With Roy, Dreyfus's character, at one point, the, the cuboids, they turned into like dust, like a golden dust. And that dust starts to swirl around. And part of it goes into Roy's hands and up his veins. And then it kind of disappears. So it's kind of like interacting with the, with the characters too. Now, they tried doing this effect. They did create some 
actual hands-on physical cubes that were just lit up and the 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 plan was to use the lit up ones just for the lighting emission uh, portion of it and then people could actually see them and then later on in special effects they would superimpose the more i don't know uh spacey alienish cube on top you know a similar situation where you have lights interacting with a model let's say but it, they couldn't get it to work it was very difficult to control them. There are some deleted scenes, very quick shots uh, I've seen on some of the documentaries where you see these cubes on wires just flying through the uh, um, through the scene, but they never got as far as to actually fulfill these special effects because they, they figured they were losing too much time. It was going to be too expensive. I mean, this is something that today could have been done super easily with CGI, but back then they just did not have the technology at that point. Some of the special effects that they used, or at least they researched at the time for being able to maybe do some of these spaceships as CGI. Colin Coltwell, I think, another name you might remember from Star Wars, also was brought on at some point uh, to try to see if they can come up with something. And they did figure out a way of doing some rudimentary uh, CGI, but it wasn't good enough, obviously, for the time. So they kind of scrapped that entire idea. So CGI wasn't the brain back then, you know, it's just that it wasn't ready. We were not ready for CGI in 1977. The actual ETs, and it's very important to realize that the term ETs, in some of these books, especially the the Bob Balban one, which is the oldest of the of the books, um, they do almost always refer to the little space aliens as ETs, which is interesting because, you know, later on, you know, a couple years later, the movie E.T. would come out and it's all about E.T. The ETs went through different variations of um, how they could create them. Obviously, they needed something small, and it would have to wear a costume because that's the only way you can get that kind of gray, big head looking thing. And in one of the uh, Spielberg interviews on the documentary that I watched, they do, t- he does talk about that at first they did try using an orangutan and the orangutan <laughs> was fitted with a costume. Uh, they put a mask on him and they also put roller skates because originally they wanted the ETs to move very fast around everybody. So they take the orangutan in costume in roller skates and the poor animal just cannot keep balanced and he's doing all kinds of stuff and he takes off his mask and he throws it and he, you know the, it was a complete disaster trying to use a, a a monkey obviously so the second way they're, they're they're thinking about doing it is to use marionettes the problem is that for, to get that kind of movement out of marionettes you could do one maybe but they needed something like 60 of them and it would have been impossible the amount of wires that would be hanging from the rafters down to these things you could never hide them again it's not CGI world yet. You cannot do wire removal like you do now. You know, you snap your fingers, wires are removed. So the the marionette idea didn't work for the for the, for the, for the mass gathering of the of the aliens. You know, later in the film they actually did use one marionette when they showed different aliens. The third option was to use a whole bunch of little girls, and that's what they did. They hired a whole bunch of girls that were dancers. Uh, ballet dancers are all different kinds of dancers from a couple of local schools, I guess. And they brought them in, they fitted in the costumes, and they tried it. And they practiced for a very long time. And they did some of them work with the roller skates because they still had this idea of them being able to move very fast. At one point, they even had mimes dressed up as technicians. And they would walk very slow. They would do their motions very slow while the little girls were flying around very fast in the roller skates. Because the thing that they were also hoping to be able to do is 
play the film faster, you know, speed up the film so that the mimes would look like they're walking at a normal speed and the little girl says the ETs would be flying everywhere so fast. Didn't work out too well. The other thing they also tried to do is they were trying to create this area where gravity was not behaving the way it normally does with us so that these little aliens, these little ETs would float up in the air and they would interact with people also by floating up in the air and kind of hovering over people and that kind of thing. And again, the wires were very difficult to hide. And that entire effect just did not work. You know, they tried it for a long time and it just wasn't working out. They had shots, they did film some shots of even the little aliens, the big, you know, like I said, little girls with the big heads, even touching, you know, all the different actors as they're gathering and that sort of thing. But even Lancome, there are some pictures of him being kind of touched by the aliens. But again, those shots, they were rearranged and, and removed. And there was never anything like that, you know, in the final cut of the film. The sequence where the mothership responds musically and you see that shattering glass up in the tower, that's an interesting scene because apparently the studio didn't want to pay to buy the shatter glass because they knew that they would have to buy a number of them because you always have to do multiple takes. So Spielberg got annoyed and to the point where he said, you know what, I'm just going to buy it myself. And he ended up buying it. I think they called it candy glass because it's made out of some kind of a material that is not real glass, obviously, so nobody gets hurt. The problem with this candy glass that they use, this is, this is the same kind of glass that stuntmen go through, you know, again, so they don't get hurt. The problem that they were having is that the lights in there were so unbelievably hot. First of all, they were in a very hot area to begin with. That entire set was apparently 100 degrees almost every day because they could not keep it cool with the air conditioning. The lights were so hot and the place was so big that it was impossible. So the problem they were having was that not only were some of the buildings that they were constructing inside of the set some of the walls were starting to like warp a little bit from the heat, but the candy glass, they couldn't maintain the lights on because it would melt the glass. So they would keep the lights off until they're ready to shoot. So like I said before, Spielberg ended up out of his own pocket paying for, I think something like 10 grand worth of glass, which I think it was like three panes of glass. And they were able to shoot it, you know, and, and detonate the glass and break it exactly on time. And when they're ready to roll camera, that's when they would turn on the lights because that amount of time was just enough so that the glass wouldn't start melting on them. The scene where you see the returnees coming off the mothership in a haze, well, you know, when you have all those pilots, you do also have, there is an Amelia Earhart character coming off the ship. It's not recognized, but that's what that person was supposed to be. There's also a shot of a little dog coming off, and it's funny because uh, they did mention in the book that the dog, everybody would slide, so they had to wear these special pads on their shoes so they wouldn't slide down the ramp. The dog obviously couldn't wear pads, so the dog would just slide, the dog slid down on his belly and just continue running, and that was Spielberg's dog. It's just, apparently, it's a dog he had back then. That I think he even had it, they said, uh, during Jaws. He, the dog would come on the, on the boat with him, so he gave his own dog a, a cameo. In those uh, scenes that I was mentioning before about the, the gravity being changed and, and the ETs floating up and down, the gravity apparently would also affect some of the other technicians. And, and they did apparently have a shot of a technician in a wheelchair who all of a sudden starts to elevate and float off the wheelchair because of the gravity change. On another uh, deleted scene... Uh, having to do with the pilgrims. Now, the pilgrims are the astronauts, if you will. The humans that are all dressed in red, that are ready to go on the ship as planned, I guess. 
And they did shoot them entering the ship, just like Richard Dreyfuss' character, Roy, does. Uh, but later, uh, they deleted those scenes because they wanted to keep it just Roy is the only one that goes in the ship because he is the one that was special. He was the one that was contacted. These other people have nothing to do with it, so they kind of don't invite them in, sort of, in terms of the, the rationale for then deleting that scene. When Roy does go into the ship, they also, you know, when they were playing around with this gravitational field effect, they did also shoot him going up the ramp, and then you actually see him levitate in the air, because they did wire him up to, to again, be affected by this, you know, zero gravity area that he's entering. He's kind of floating up in the air. Again, they got rid of that whole sequence, because if it didn't work for one, they had to remove it for all. Going back to reactions that Carrie, the little boy, the, the character of Barry had, at the end when they're leaving and he starts to cry because he's saying goodbye to his friends, what Spielberg said to him, like, you know, this is the scene where, you know, you have to say goodbye to your friends. And apparently what, what, the little, what happened to the little boy was that he thought that he was being told he was never going to see his friends again, meaning his real friends back from where he lives. So he got all emotional and started crying. And then the actress that played him, his mom started crying too because she got emotional because of him. Again, they got this fantastic reaction by accident almost because he kind of, you know, he, he gave an honest reaction thinking he wasn't going to see his friends. But in reality, it meant that the aliens, the little ETs were his friends. But it's a cute little story having to do with, you know, acting with kids. Some of the special effects, again, uh, that they did very effectively was uh, a lot of those cloud effects, if you remember, where all of a sudden the cloud formations start to hide what's happening behind them and the, and the UFOs are hiding behind the clouds. Well, the actual clouds were done, not necessarily for the first time, but uh, very effectively this time by having this water tank with a combination of salt water and fresh water. And when they introduced a little bit of paint into it, you get all these weird patterns forming and they kind of stayed hovering in a certain section of the tank because of the salt water being in the bottom and the non-salt water being on top so they kind of behaves like a cloud you have that cloud looking image so they did a lot of stuff like that in order to get it uh, you know just right and it worked fantastic there was also a very conscious decision to use 70 millimeter film especially for the special effects and the way that it was explained is this when you watch a film especially older films non-digital films, <laughs> the older technology, you do notice sometimes, and I've noticed this, that right before a special effects takes place, the image gets grainy. Sometimes before a wipe or a dissolve or something like that, or a big special effect is coming, the picture gets grainy. And that's because once you create a special effect, you are doing multi-layers. You are doing sometimes multiple passes on one film. And every time you make a pass, you degrade that film. The film becomes second generation, third generation, fourth generation. It becomes less clean every time you do it. And that's how sometimes you notice that. Oh, an effect is coming because everything just got grainy for some bizarre reason. And now the effect happens. Well, in order to compensate for this, what they were doing is they were shooting, obviously, all the effects on 70 millimeter, which is going to give you a very nice, very good image. However, because you're going to go so many times, you know, in terms of exposing this to multi-layers, it will start to degrade a little bit. So you try to use the best film possible. This way, you, the degradation is minimized as much as possible. And then what they did was the rest of it was shot on 35 millimeter, and then they blew it up to 65 millimeter slash 70 millimeter, you know, it's almost the same. On purpose, this way, the quality loss by enhancing that 35 millimeter print would match 
the quality that you were having with the special effects because of the fact that there's so many layers that they're working with and hopefully compensating at the same time by using 70 millimeter these two different film grades being able to match each other as much as possible so we as the audience don't notice oh my god there's an effects coming because everything just changed no it, it pretty much matched perfectly how they did it and i guess the trick that they they knew for a while that that's how you do it when you're dealing with too many layers use better film like 70 millimeter and then for the regular shots you take the 35 and you purposely you know run it a second time or expose it a second time or something like that they blow it up by blowing it up it creates a little more grain and it matches what you have on your special effects if you guys understand that that's wonderful because it's very difficult to explain <laughs> also they used a lot of front projection effects not so much rear projections but front projections a lot of miniatures a lot of mats and a lot of all those interacting at the same time, all those things being shot as multiple layers or combined layers. You might have a, a miniature set with a front projection in front of it and maybe even some live action. So, you, you know, you're dealing with a lot of layers. Obviously, the more you can do at the same time, the more you save on quality. Because if you start to layer everything, every little thing gets layered, you might end up with a three, four, five, six layer cake of film you are going to lose quality so um the more you are able to shoot it you know through the camera with all these effects happening at the same time the better it's going to look when you're done by february of 1977 after production had wrapped up pretty much you know a while principal photography they were finally able to go to india to shoot the india scenes of all the big crowds reacting to the sounds during this trip to India, Spielberg was apparently inspired by watching these kind of city and oil refinery landscape for him to have an idea of what the mothership should look like. Originally, they were going to make it look like a black void, a completely black void that you couldn't see when you look up in the sky. But later, he realized he wanted something a little more flashy. So... On one hand, he's got this oil refinery city looking thing, and he wants to use that for the top of the ship. For the bottom of the ship, he wants to use the void looking part, but he wants to add lights to the void. And he kind of used, from what I understand, the San Fernando Valley look with all the lights, the street lights and the city lights. That would be what the bottom of the ship would look like. And that's how he came up with, you know, what this thing is going to look like. At this point, even though he already has a concept designer, George Jensen, who did the majority, I would say maybe 99% or 95% of all the concept designs and the, and the uh, storyboards and, you know, all the stuff this man has done. He then brings in Ralph McQuarrie to help him a little bit with that mothership. And I'm sure he didn't pull McQuarrie's uh, name out of the air by this time, you know, by February of 77, I'm sure he knows because he is good friends with Lucas, what a great artist McQuarrie was. And brought him in to help him to kind of, kind of push this mothership sequence design, you know, you know, a little further out there. So Macquarie takes all this information, you know, the Royal Refinery and the San Fernando Valley looking lights, and he comes up with the mothership design that we kind of get at the end of the movie. He did a couple of different versions, but you, you're there. By the time you see this thing, you know, this design, you are there. You have that ship ready to go. During the building of the mothership, a lot of people are involved. At some point, they even bring in some Star Wars guys because they're finishing with Star Wars, at least the special effects part. Some of these guys are done, so they're coming in to help. And one 
guy in particular, his name is Dave Jones. He comes in to help to, you know, to bid the, to, to build a ship. And he adds apparently an R2D2 from Star Wars into the ship. And you can see it. I've seen it enough times now where the ship hovers over the mountain, over the shoulder of Julian as she's watching over them, you know, on the, watching down from the mountain, and you actually do see the silhouette of the R2-D2 guy upside down on the edge of the ship, which is really, really cool. Apparently, they also added a, a TIE fighter at some point in some place. I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard it's there. I don't know. We'll find out one day. Dennis Muren, again, another giant of Star Wars special effects, came in to help to shoot. He was there to help shoot all the miniature photography of the ship, of the mothership as it turns and banks and all the other stuff. He was there to help with that. They did a lot of shapes for the scout ships. There were tons and tons of scout ships, and the shapes really were all over the place. They used all kinds of things. At one point, they even included a Tonka truck as a ship. And I do remember there are times when I'm watching the movie and I'm like, that thing looks like a little truck. What the hell is that? And, you know, you got all kinds of weird shapes, very basic shapes, but they're all illuminated in a certain way, which was explained during the documentary, so that the lights kind of overpower the shape. So you're not really trying to see the shape too much. It's the lights that really design and the, the lights really describe the object that you're watching, really, because uh, it, it works kind of in reverse. You, they don't really want you to look at the shapes too much. We've seen the film so many times, and we can appreciate the film so much, you know, from a from a technical perspective that we are, I'm always looking for the shapes, you know, I'm trying to see beyond the lights. During the initial concept design of these scouts, again, going back to this fast food thing that I don't know why Spielberg obsessed with fast food he wanted to use these like mcdonald arches that would kind of cross and form almost like an m-shape ship as a scout there was another one that was kind of like the chevron logo you know these bent lines and there was another one like the gas station with the bit 76 with a circle around it these were shapes that were trying to be incorporated into them, but they kind of got rid of most of them because they realized these are way too obvious shapes for people to recognize. We got to make it a little more mysterious, and they did. They had so many shapes, but they finally settled on some of them. But still, like I said before, there are some funny-looking shapes. I, I saw one that they were showing me on the documentary, which is a gas mask. It's basically a gas mask. You see the two filters and the eye sockets and it's floating in the air and it's all lit up. And it's like, wow, they actually did that. And I didn't, I didn't catch it until I watched it on the documentary. When they were done shooting most of this stuff and they had to come back to do some fixes, let's say, Carlo Rambaldi was brought in. Now he is a special effects makeup. I don't know if you want to call him makeup. He constructed a lot of animatronics, let's say. Uh, I do remember his name primarily from E.T. I know he did a lot of work on E.T., but here they brought him in to come up with a couple of more alien races. So if you remember, not only do we see the little big head aliens, but there's a scene where we see an alien come down and he's got these very long arms and he's very spindly and huge and like a kind of like a curvy neck. Well, that's kind of like a puppet, like a marionette type. Remember, we were talking about this earlier. They wanted to do a lot like that, but they ended up realizing they can only do one because it's just too much to control. So Rambaldi then came up with another alien design, which is the one that at the end of the movie interacts with Lancome in terms of doing the hand symbols and the face gestures and all that stuff. And that one was incredible. It was all operated, you know, with pulleys and, and wires from far away. I think they had, I don't know, something like maybe 15, 20 people operating this thing, everybody doing a different thing. If you carefully look at the face, now keep in mind that in the film, they try to 
hide the faces as much as possible. And they do it because if you look too much, especially at the big headed ones, you can kind of see that they're like little puppets. So they kind of edited it in a way and shot it in a way where they're overly exposed. You know, they're, they're exposed. There's a lot of lights from behind. So you kind of see silhouettes every now and then you do see an eye, but the way that they edited was also like a lot of those shots. When you do see their heads, it's through cam a camera being used to take pictures by Jillian and as she's snapping shots, you get these flashes, these quick flashes of, you know, the little aliens. The bigger one, you also get this kind of ethereal looking one. But at the end, the last final alien, so you get to see like three different races of alien, which Spielberg also talks about, that he wanted to show some diversity, even amongst this alien culture, that there are different types of alien within, you know, the ship. But the final one that comes out is the one that's most controllable in terms of being able to do all these facial features and we do actually get to see him his face and i always thought that it reminded me it, it, it looked very familiar and they did note that to construct his face they kind of used the little boy barry's face to kind of reflect the look of this alien so, so it kind of does remind you if when you look at him and you look at the little boy you're like wow they do kind of look alike it's really interesting so originally the film was supposed to be released, or at least they were shooting for Easter of 77, and obviously they can never make that deadline. By May of 77 now, they're still working on the film, they're editing and special effects, and Spielberg needs to do a couple more reshoots. In May, they go out to the Mojave Desert, and they shoot the fighter plane, the World War II fighter planes, uh, the discovery scenes. Originally, they were going to do them, remember, in the Amazon or something, but it was way too expensive, so they ended up bringing it closer to a more local area. This scene also allows them to be able to completely eliminate the entire sequence in the airport and then the limousine of them of Lancome and Lachlan meeting. This is where they now meet in, during this initial encounter with these planes. During this time, they also are able to shoot the scene where the coordinates are found through the radio signal, I guess. Uh, and then they roll that giant globe and they figure out that it's all going to be happening at Devil's Towers in Wyoming, thereby also being able to eliminate the entire hotel sequence. So that kind of gets rid of that too. By October of 77, they are ready for a test screening and they show the film. And one of the major changes they make on that particular cut is that Spielberg wanted to use the song When You Wish Upon a Star, the actual recording used uh, during Pinocchio, during the end of the film, during the, the mothership Roy going into sequence. And that is one of the complaints that they got during the test screening was that that, that music just didn't seem to fit too well. It was, it kind of th took people out a little bit of the film. Later on, what he ended up doing, it was obviously he removed it, but he kind of worked the beats of that song a little bit through John Williams' score at the end. You do hear, dun, 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 dun. you know, you get a little bit of those beats. By November of 77, the film is released and it runs through the summer of 78. This is a time where films would run a very long time and films would then be re-released a year later or maybe a year after that. You know, Star Wars did it. A lot of other films have done it. They have to be big films, you know, your big ones, your, 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 your Jaws, your Raiders of the Lost Star, you know, films like that, that get these re-releases. But it had a very successful run. The film's budget originally was 12 million, like I mentioned. And by the time it was all done, I think it made about 116 domestically million dollars and 171 international. So the film was a hit. I don't think it was a Jaws type of hit, but it was a huge hit. They made Way, 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 way more money than they <laughs> spend, that's for sure. 
By the time the 1978 Oscars were awarded, Close Encounters took home an Oscar for sound effects editing. So a little time passed and Spielberg is starting to move on to his next project, which at the time I think was 1941. He was starting to put together 1941, that following comedy that he, that he put out. And Spielberg said that he always felt a little too rushed at the end. He wanted to complete a couple more things and he was never able to do it. And Columbia came up to him and said, all right, listen, we have an idea. You, you know, I know you want to add a couple more scenes. You want to tweak a little bit. You want to re-edit a little bit. That's fine. The only thing we want in return for this next screening, you know, for this re-release is we want to see the inside of the mothership. We want you to shoot a scene that shows what Roy is seeing inside. And Spielberg said, okay, in order to be able to do the things he wanted, but he kind of claims that he was a little reluctant to do it because he didn't really want to show the inside of the ship. But that's the only way that they were given the money to be able to then complete, you know, what he needed to complete. The deal was they were going to give him to me. They gave him two million dollars to, you know, do the reshoots that he needed to do, and that after he was done, you know, filming 1941, he would then go and do it. Ron Cobb was hired. He's a legendary designer. Uh, he's worked. I think he worked in Star Wars. He worked in, a, in just about every film you can think of. I think he did some some work for Alien. Also, I'm not sure. He designed the entire inside of the ship, as far as what it would look like. What does that entire wall of like a interior city building with little tiny windows with all these little aliens? He designed that whole thing. Dreyfus, because of his scheduling problems, was only able to shoot for one day, and they had to do it in February of '79, way, 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 way before Spieler was done shooting 1941. So they brought him in. And in one day, he shot that entire sequence inside the ship. After he was done with 1941, he was then able to redo some of these other things he wanted to do, including the ship that was discovered in the desert. That whole sequence was shot in January of 1980. It was done with a miniature, and it was used for perspective. So basically what they did is they have a camera with a miniature ship in front of you, and then way, 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 way in the distance, you have people running around in a helicopter and, and some people in horses or whatever, and they're far enough to look as if they are little tiny people approaching this huge, you know, monolithic ship when the ship is actually a miniature. So it's a great, great effect they did. And it was done very simple just by using, again, forced perspective. Spielberg then re-edited the film a little bit. He reinserted the shower scene that I mentioned earlier of, of Dreyfus having his breakdown in the shower. He added a scene where, and I absolutely love that scene, where originally what you saw was Dreyfus's work truck barreling through the land at night, and you see a tiny little star following him, a tiny little light. What he did was he then added now the car driving through the street, and you're watching it down from above, and then you see this gigantic shadow of a ship following the car and creating a shadow. It's beautiful. It's one of my favorite shots in the movie. That was added to this uh, special edition. He removed a couple of scenes here or there, too. Overall, what's ironic is that the special edition, with the additions and the removals, ends up being about three minutes shorter than the initial film. So that's kind of interesting. The special edition opened in August of 1980, and it grossed an additional $16 million. So $2 million invested, $16 million get back. Not a bad deal. But this is not the last time that the film would be tinkered with. You know, if you guys thought that Lucas was the only insane <laughs> director that kept tinkering with films, no. Spielberg then, once again, in 1997, uh, when they released a collector's edition, 
removed basically the inside of the spaceship scenes. This is something that was bothering him. That, you know, he, he didn't want to show the inside and, and, and said that that is something that has to be kept for the audience's imagination as to what goes on in there. And that is the last major, you know, editing that was done on the film. The film has been re-released again on video, now on Blu-ray, and very recently in 4K, the latest and greatest technology we have now. It's a 40th anniversary edition that has been re-released. It is an amazing pack. The package is ridiculous. The package sings the music and it lights up. It's just, it's just worth it just for the packaging alone. As I mentioned before, this year is when they released, because of the 40th anniversary, this book that I just read that gave me all of this information. The author of the book, Michael Clastorin, is the same author that did the Back to the Future book that I recently reviewed uh, not too long ago. And Bob Balaban, Close Encounters of the Third Kind Diary, you can find that on eBay, super, super cheap. It's a great book. I, I, you have to have that book. There's not a lot of material uh, having to do with Close Encounters out there. I do own, uh, I think, some some trading cards somewhere. Uh, I haven't really gone through them yet, but there wasn't much. There was, uh, as I mentioned, uh, you know, during our comic book uh, examination, uh, there was like some kind of bendy action figure, but... This isn't the type of movie that maintained a crazy, crazy Star Wars-like, I don't want to say following, but momentum, if you will. This was a one-shot movie. That's it. You don't get anything out of this. Star Wars is a monster that keeps growing and moving and growing and moving. This is a one-shot movie that kind of stays with you. And this was really interesting because I I do remember seeing this film for the first time. I did see it in Uruguay, I remember, uh, obviously after Star Wars. The movie came out in 77 here in the States, so I must have seen it in 78 maybe a year before coming here. I do remember seeing it in the theater, definitely remember seeing it in the theater. But like I said, the movie is the type of thing that because it doesn't have that big giant push that Star Wars had, it just kind of, it's there, it's almost like there on a shelf. And you can go to it and, and watch it and, oh wow, this is really a great movie. And then you just put it back on that shelf and you don't really think about it too much. There was no marketing bonanza. <laughs> onslaught like you did with with something like star wars even on tv like this latest documentary i saw was done i think it was done like uh back in the in the mid 90s or the late 90s i think it might have been around 97 when when he did put out that collector's edition when he did remove you know those interior ship shots and this is like almost an hour and 45 minute documentary but i don't remember you know, similar to how you had, you know, the making of Star Wars on TV, the making of Empire Strikes Back on TV, the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark on TV. I don't remember them having a making of, of Close Encounters. Or maybe I just wasn't around here when they, when they did show it. I don't know. I'm not sure. But this is a, a great movie to come to revisit. It is so groundbreaking. And the stories of, of how this thing was made, and it's just amazing. You know, you kind of, a lot of times think about movies and, you know, they come in and they go, they come in and they go. And you really don't think about all the trouble that it goes into making these things. And this movie is just, again, once you start digging into the process, it is just incredible how you end up with what you end up with. How certain things never make it, how certain things never work, how certain things work perfectly, you know. And it does chronicle the success of of Spielberg. Remember, he doesn't have, you know, he doesn't have a, a spotless record. You know, he does make these great films and every now and then he makes these not so great films. They kind of, a couple, I don't want to call them flops because he usually doesn't flop. He just doesn't make great films sometimes. But a lot of times he just 
it's incredible how he he works and this one it it just worked perfectly i strongly recommend it i went to see a 40th anniversary screening they had earlier this year which was the original cut that is what they show you it was the original cut it was wonderful they showed a little tiny um, i don't know 10 15 minute documentary in the beginning a lot of this footage, preliminary footage, which I'm starting to think that maybe a lot of this uh, footage that I'm seeing on this documentary is the footage that I was talking about during the comic book that the artists were able to see because it was stuff that I had never seen before. Now, I do own probably two or three different versions of the movie in DVD and Blu-ray form. And uh, I am going to start to go through them because a lot of times, you know, you buy all these DVDs and you never really have the time to go through them. The best that you do sometimes is go through the deleted scenes. But I'm going to try to go through it because I'm sure there's more making of, and I'm really interested in being able to see some of the original making of, their version of what a making of documentary would be. Like I said, the, the one I just watched recently, which is on YouTube, and I'll put a link of it, was from, I think, 97. So it's a more modern making of. I think that even while it almost looks like Spielberg is sitting on the set of Saving Private Ryan or something, because it looks like he's some, some kind of World War II set giving the interview about Close Encounters. And it's been, he's, and he's talking about how it's been 20 years since, so, you know, I made this movie in 20 years. Wow, uh, 20 years. Well, today it's been 40 years. So it's like, wow, I can't believe 40 years since this movie was made. It's just unbelievable. It's, it's Star Wars, basically. You're, you know, you're dealing with Star Wars territory here as far as time. You know, these films that influenced our lives, they're hitting their 40th anniversary. It's just incredible. And this one is, it's a great film. It's not a, it's not a dark film. It's a very, light-hearted film and and it's you know it's very serious too but it's very accessible to everybody it's it's almost like a fairy tale you know he did say and that's one of the things i remember that even Truffaut was saying that one of the things he loved about the film the most is that there are really no bad guys this isn't a film where you have to be angry at somebody it's basically everybody trying to do their best in the situation that they're on and yeah if you have a chance Dust it off your collection, pick it up, uh, you know, rent it from Netflix, just order it. Like I said, the new version seems to be amazing. If you have happen to have a 4K television, I'm sure it looks fantastic. So give Close Encounters of the Third Kind another viewing. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We took a little bit of a break from our normal format because we kind of focused only on one subject. And that's because there was so much material that you just could not, you know, squeeze it into a 20-minute segment. This was Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you know, the comic book adaptation that I found online. You know, little by little, I end up rediscovering all these adaptations. And this was a, a pretty good one, you know, when you, when you think about it. You do notice a little differences in the story, which is kind of interesting you know when you notice those script changes whether the artists are working with the shooting script and then the director ends up to change some things around from the shooting script which is cool and sometimes they edit out stuff in the editing process that you never makes it to the film so that's even cooler too because we get to see those scenes and in the subject of deleted scenes through the making of books that we've talked about today we got to see quite a number of other scenes, some of them very minimal, some of them do show up on some of the DVD, Blu-rays, and even I remember back my Laserdiscs versions of the film, 
you could kind of catch them. But there were some that you never got to see them, period. And I, I saw them for the first time very recently. A lot of them having to do with the mothership and the little aliens and the other things that were supposed to happen, the other communications and contacts that were supposed to happen that were just too difficult to be made with the technology, the special effects technology back then, that today they could have done them in a, you know, in a blink of an eye with, through CGI. So it's really, really cool. And to also be able to find a lot of these documentaries that are still out there. Every time they put a major, major re-release of these, they try to, you know, redo the documentaries. The one that I watched, you'll see a a link at the bottom of our page here is a pretty lengthy, I think it's like an hour and a half or an hour and 40 minutes. So it's not very current, but it is very good and very accurate. And it does have these little, like I said, tidbits that I've never seen before. And it reinforces a lot of the stories that I read, you know, on these books, not only in the very current visual history, but the Bob Balbam Closing Encounters of the Third Kind diary, and even the Closing Encounters of the Third Kind production design scrapbook by Joe Alves. You know, his is a very, very good book if you're interested in the sketches and the behind-the-scenes photos. He had a lot of material there. I'm sure he's got tons more. So these are a whole bunch of books that I strongly, strongly recommend to anyone interested in the history of this monumental sci-fi epic. So on behalf of everybody here, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. This is the motion picture that astounded us, that challenged us, that dazzled us. The motion picture that reminded us we are not alone. This is the road that took us to the outer limits of a brilliant filmmaker's imagination. The road over 100 million people have taken and will want to take again. The road millions of others will take for the first time. But now the road will take us all even farther. Coming this summer to theaters everywhere, a special edition of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Director Steven Spielberg has filmed additional scenes designed to expand the total experience of the original motion picture. Now Richard Dreyfuss as Roy Neary will share with audiences all over the world the experience of being inside. When we saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind for the first time, we wanted more. Now there is more. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2017. Oh, 
This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>